1: Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, the author of Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of November 18th, 2019. On this week's show, we'll discuss blackballed quarterback Colin Kaepernick's bizarro workout in front of a handful of scouts, and defensive lineman Miles Garrett's unorthodox use of a helmet. Former NFL player Nate Jackson will be here for that conversation. Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer will join us to talk about the Houston Astros' latest front office disgrace, an elaborate sign-stealing scheme that allegedly involved cameras, wireless relays, and most important, garbage cans. Finally, we'll interview the director Asif Kapadia about his new documentary about the life of soccer icon Diego Maradona. Josh Levine is Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen, The Forgotten Life Behind An American
0: Myth. He joins me from Boston. Hey, Josh. Hello, Stefan. No wild and outside this week. Not one of the weeks where you're feeling it, Nah, I guess. Wanted to keep things moving. I felt like it was slowing things down. You're just kind of like oscillating sine curve of love and hate for your first book is just, it keeps me alive, not knowing how you're going to feel about it in a given week. Keep the listeners uh, guessing. That way they may be more motivated
1: to join the other 2,000 people that bought Wild and Outside. Josh, let's uh, mention that we're doing a live show. We're doing a live show Tuesday, December 3rd. It'll be at the Hamilton Live here in the District of Columbia. You can buy tickets at slate.com live. Slate.com slash live tickets,
0: information, the start time. (laughs) I'm thinking 7 p.m. We have a bunch of journalists who are going to join us for the show that we're very excited about. Some of your hang-up favorites. We've got Gene Demby from NPR's uh, Code Switch. We've got Dave McKenna of the late, great Deadspin.com, RIP. And we've got Lindsey Gibbs, who's got a great uh, newsletter now called Power Plays that people should check out. So we're excited to have those folks on stage with us at The Hamilton, Tuesday, December 3rd, slate.com slash live, baby. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix.
1: It was a bizarre week for the National Football League, even by NFL standards. On Tuesday, the league, out of the blue, invited Colin Kaepernick to perform at a workout to be held four days later. On Thursday, Cleveland Browns lineman Miles Garrett lost his shit, yanking off Pittsburgh Steelers quarterback Mason Rudolph's helmet and hitting him over the head with it. On Friday, the NFL suspended Garrett indefinitely. Then came a crazy Saturday that included, among other things, Kaepernick wearing a Kunta Kinte t-shirt, refusing to do the workout on the NFL's terms, moving it to a high school field an hour away, and throwing 60-yard spirals into receiver hands. Afterward, one of the handful of scouts who attended reportedly said that Kaepernick's arm looked elite. According to one reporter, Kaepernick told some scouts, when you go back, tell your owners to stop being scared. Here's a little more of what he said.
2: I've been ready for three years. I've been denied for three years. We all know why I came out here, showed it today in front of everybody. We have nothing to hide. So we're waiting for the 32 owners, the 32 teams, Roger Goodell. All of them to stop running, stop running from the truth, stop running from the people.
1: Nate Jackson also is always ready. He played for six seasons for the Denver Broncos and is the author of the football memoirs Slow Getting Up and Fantasy Man. Welcome back to the program, buddy.
2: I'm not running from the truth.
1: Never. Nate no. Jackson never runs from the truth. Let's start with Kaepernick. The NFL didn't articulate a reason for its sudden generosity and offering a chance to try out in front of team executives. This wasn't by no means normal. Free agent tryouts, as you well know, Nate, are held on Tuesdays, not the day before NFL Sunday. The whole thing reeked of a stunt cooked up by the NFL to gain some unspecified leverage over Kaepernick. And then Kaepernick and his representatives were understandably wary of the league's motives. So you had both sides trying to establish leverage. And in the end, the shit show subsumed the idea of a real tryout, if that was even the purpose to begin with. What did you make of it, Nate?
2: Well, aside from it being on a Saturday, that is that is odd. But it's in the middle of the season, and everything that's gone on with him has been odd. but. Look, you don't get to bring your own camera crews in for a normal tryout. When you want to try out for an NFL team, they tell you where it's going to be, when it's going to be. You show up there by yourself, and uh, you subject yourself to their terms if you want to play on their teams. You don't really get to strong-arm the NFL into you know agreeing to every demand you have and then telling them, stop being scared and sign me. I think that it might have been – you know I don't know how um, genuine – Colin Kaepernick's interest is in just being a teammate, because that's what being a football player is. It's being a teammate. You kind of fall in line. You don't get to dictate the terms. And I th- so I think I, he made a mistake.
0: Well, that's what a lot of folks said. James Brown on CBS, Stephen A. Smith on ESPN. And the general consensus among uh, pundits seems to be that this hurt Kaepernick's chances to ever play in the NFL, if he ever did have a chance to play in the NFL, that it's that it's dead now, that it made him look... Entitled, arrogant, whatever dog whistle term you want to use. But, you know, the fact that the NFL gave him this, it's kind of an ultimatum on Tuesday and said, you have two hours to decide if you want to agree to our like weird ass, like unconventional, nobody ever does it this way workout. And he said, yes, you could argue that that shows his willingness to be flexible and play by their rules to some extent, and that it was the NFL that came into this with bad faith and unclear motives. And the way that this played out through the whole week, like nothing really, you know, convinced anyone that the NFL's motives were pure here.
1: I agree with that. But I think that the reason that we should give Kaepernick a little more slack is that, look, he's different. I just don't think it's realistic to say that he should be just like any other NFL player at this point. because yeah, we're
2: he's way not. past that. We're way past that. <laughs> yeah, but why not? That's what football is. If you want to be on a football team, you can't be different. You well, can't. And the team doesn't want a guy who sees himself as different on their team. And then neither does his teammates, actually. And so if he wants to ingratiate himself in the NFL and say, hey, I'm ready to have this job. You you can't pretend that you're different than everyone else.
1: The thing that, that swayed me, though, Nate, was the dispute over the waiver liability that the NFL wanted him to sign. The NFL put out this statement, and it said that they wanted him to sign a waiver that was based on the standard waiver. Lawyers looked at it. And said he would have been foolish to sign this because of the pre-existing collusion complaint that he filed against the league that was um, resolved with a settlement. There are still outstanding potential legal issues here with this guy that do make him different from, you know, a quarterback who's waiting for a call to come in and throw on a Tuesday because somebody got hurt the previous
0: Sunday.
2: Yeah, I suppose so. Well, well, I'm actually not fully sure what exactly the fine print of that waiver was. What was he risking by signing it?
0: So there's some debate about that. And I think there's gray area in it. But some folks are saying that if he signed it and agreed to the NFL's terms, then he would not have the ability in the future to bring any further claims against them, that this was basically a way for them to concoct a workout, claim that it was out of the goodness of their heart that they wanted to give him this opportunity, but it was actually a way for them to, you know, get him in a legal checkmate, is what Mike Florio of Pro Football Talk said, that, yeah. to make it so that he wouldn't be a, a problem for them anymore in a courtroom.
2: Or in case Colin Kaepernick had in his mind that he was going to use it as leverage for his own lawsuit. If he didn't get signed, well, look, I had such a great workout. Here are my career stats. This has to be collusion. I'm filing another lawsuit. And so you can look at it from either either vantage point. The NFL is trying to protect themselves in, from more funny stuff. And Colin Kaepernick was trying to do the same. But ultimately, if you want to be on a football field, you have to play by the rules of the team. You don't get to dictate your own terms, and sadly, like we're going to see that happen, and it's just going to be more outrage, but I don't think that Colin Kaepernick's going to land on a team. Nate, I'm
1: a little surprised to hear some of the things you're saying, because on the one hand, what Colin Kaepernick is doing is really sticking up for the rights of NFL players that don't exist right now, and he has basically taken the fall for players who want to be outspoken and who aren't willing to toe the line and do what the team says. And you may think it's a losing battle, but he's at least fighting it. I mean, I haven't seen anything to indicate that if Colin Kaepernick were signed and asked to go call plays on the field, he wouldn't be a reliable leader as a quarterback. How he performs, I don't know. But as someone you would trust on the field to call the plays and lead the team and motivate his teammates, I don't see any evidence that that would be problematic.
2: Yeah, I'm saying as a teammate, I agree with you. Like as a player, if he came in, I think there'd be no problems in the locker room. I think his teammates would embrace him. What I'm talking about is is him getting his foot in the door, is, is after everything that's gone on over the last three years, is pacifying an owner and a general manager and a coach and a city enough to have him come in and be their quarterback. And I think if that's his goal, then you know just the fact that they set up this workout uh, was a good opportunity for him to go. Because he says, look, I just want to play. I'm a good enough quarterback. I'm a good enough player to be playing there. And so I think at some point, how do you create an opportunity that allows your play to speak for yourself? And I think if there were 26 26- NFL scouts going to be in that facility at the Atlanta Falcons headquarters, that was an opportunity for him to go there and throw the ball around and have let them have a look at him physically. And he didn't have to say a word. So yeah. I think they've heard, you know, I don't think they want to hear him speak about his grievances. I think they want to see if he can still play. And really, that's why you had 26 out of 32 teams going to go show up for that. And I think it was an opportunity for him to just go throw the ball around. Yes, I, I appreciate that he's sticking up for the rights of the aggrieved football player. Every single football player in the NFL, at the drop of a hat, does whatever the NFL tells him. If they call if they call a player who doesn't have a job and want to give him a workout an hour later, he says yes to whatever terms uh, they ask of him.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the key question here is whether this was actually a good opportunity or not. And I think he would have probably, if I had to guess, he would have, treated it differently if he thought it was a legitimate opportunity or a legitimate process. But, you know, being out of the league for three years and then all of a sudden, you know, reportedly with no warning, no communication to his, you know, representatives, you have to go through this process that nobody has ever gone through on a day when players don't usually work out on terms that we set Um, and we're the organization that paid Uh, U.S. settlement because we colluded against you to keep you out of the league, like you would just have to think something weird is going on. Like something, something fishy is up. And so this notion that um, this was somehow what every NFL player does and you'll do it at the, the drop of a hat. Like most NFL players, the reason that they're going to a workout on a random Tuesday with a random team is because they're You know, every other team in the league has decided that they shouldn't be in the league because they're not a good enough player. Um, That's not what has has happened with Kaepernick. The reason that he's not in the league is because there was this systematic collusion and decision by the league and all of the franchises that they're not going to have him in the league for non-football reasons. And so this idea that, oh, he has to go and demonstrate that he can play football is just fundamentally, it's like not what the actual issue is.
2: I believe it is Josh because it's been 3 years since he's been on a football field.
0: So it wasn't the issue but it became the issue at some point along the line.
2: Absolutely. I mean after 3 years, you know, if you're if if you're off the football field for 1 year, you come back and it's and you're rusty and you have a hard time Getting up to speed with these guys—they're—they're they're moving very fast. They're very conditioned, and they practice every day. If you're not practicing football every day, you can be throwing at the high school with receivers all you want, but it's just really not the same thing. An argument also could be made that Colin Kaepernick was in a physical decline at the end of his career in San Francisco. I mean, some people might not believe that. Some might believe it but he didn't have as much success at that time as he had several years earlier.
1: It doesn't sound like you even support the guy anymore Nate and I know you support what Colin Kaepernick stood for.
2: I do and I I want him to play. I want Colin Kaepernick to be in the NFL under center with a helmet on, I just don't think this is the best way to go about it. I, I believe that he can do more good for his cause within the NFL. I think that if he were to find himself on a team, he could really change a lot of minds with the way he conducted himself and his behavior on a day-to-day basis. That's what people want to see. And I thought that the way he would do, do that is kind of playing along until he gets in there, and then he can reassess where he's at.
0: Not a guy who got where he is today by... Going along with uh, what authorities want him to do and what they want him to say and and how they want him to act. And I think he thinks, and I think that the NFL actually doesn't want him that this wasn't genuine,
1: but that's what's so weird, Josh. Like it was their idea. And I think this probably came from Jay Z, whom the NFL brought aboard um a few months ago to try to do some uh, reputation control in the in the in the aftermath of all of this, suggesting that we got to do something to show that we care about Kaepernick. And it's turned out to be, I think, nakedly insincere.
2: All he needed was one, though. I mean, you say the NFL, the NFL is the umbrella, but then you have 32 individual teams all with needs. And all you really needed is one of those teams to say, hey, this guy looks strong. He looks fast. He looks ready. Let's take a chance on him.
0: Unless they were colluding against him, as he alleged. Maybe we should move on to talk about Miles Garrett. I'm curious, Nate, what you thought when you saw our friends hitting Mason uh, Rudolph in the bare head with his helmet. I mean, we've all done it. We've all been on a football field. We've <laughs> ripped a guy's helmet off and, and hit him with it. What came to mind for you?
2: Well, I've seen that situation play out before practice where there's a scuffle between, typically between offensive linemen and defensive linemen, uh, and... They, they each have hold of their face mask and a helmet gets ripped off and one guy ends up having the helmet in his hand and that's that's a very kind of startling Prospect to be confronted with all of a sudden because you're being attacked, you're raging, you're defending yourself, and all of a sudden you have this new weapon in your hand, and you're not really thinking about it because you don't think rationally when it's fight or flight like that. And so I've seen I've seen a, a helmet get swung by a, an offensive lineman. It didn't connect uh, with anybody, thank thank God. But it, I've seen them be swung before, and I've seen them be thrown across the field or or whatever it might be. But that incident was very unique in that it presented itself where he could actually connect with the same guy who he took the helmet off of and a month prior to that we all watched mason rudolph nearly get decapitated by a quote-unquote you know football type of hit he hit the ground already unconscious like a dead body they had to take his face mask off of him and you know wobbly uh walk him into the locker room nobody remembers the guy who hit him on that hit the the uh, the result was much worse than what it was with Miles Garrett. But well, now we'll never forget Miles Garrett and what happened because it represented this kind of breach. A protocol. And if, if if you hit somebody within the rules of the game in, in football, you can kill them and nobody will think badly for it. But when you pull a helmet off or you see a helmet flying through the air without someone's head in it, it's scarier for some reason than when someone's head is in it. Either way, it's a weapon. But I think Miles Garrett just kind of uh, didn't realize what he was doing. And now he'll never be able to live it down.
1: Before we get to the the sort of bipolar question that everybody seems to want to talk about that Miles Garrett is this really smart Thoughtful guy wants to be a paleontologist and reads poetry, and how this was as um, Joe Thomas, his former teammate on the Browns, said, so seemingly out of character and so shocking. I want to stick to what you were just bringing up, Nate, and and this is the question of how football players are taught to play football. I mean, what's troubling about football isn't the routine blocking and tackling; it's the additive violence, it's the finishing the play, it's hitting someone in a way that as an observer, you think isn't necessary to complete the play, to bring a guy down to the ground or whatever. You know, a guy getting hit as he's going out of bounds or the third guy in on a tackle. But this is how you're taught. This is how you're conditioned to react. And what Garrett did is just that six inches beyond that, isn't
2: it? Yeah, so defensive players in particular, they are taught to play the whistle. Until you hear the whistle, you are attacking. You are swarming the ball carrier, especially uh, in the NFL, where these guys are really shifty. You may think your teammate hasn't tackled; he gets out of his grasp and scoots down the field for a touchdown. And so, when you're at a uh, when you're on an NFL practice, these defenders are being implored to swarm the ball, and all eleven guys have to end up at the ball carrier that's what ends the play and that's what the that's what makes the coach blow his whistle and so these guys are conditioned to attack until they hear the whistle. And you don't really even hear the whistle on a field because you just go until the guy's in the dirt. And so um, that's what gets you paid. That's what gets you promoted. That's what gets you praised by the coaches. And when you watch film, you know a coach is never going to rip you like the media does for an egregious hit. In fact, the coaches are going to pat you on the back and say, way to go, because we'll take that penalty. And oftentimes, I I, I imagine, and I'm pretty sure, that teams – will uh, pay for the fines that players get if they don't believe that they're justified. And so these guys are taught to attack and they're taught to be as violent as possible and they're rewarded for it.
0: When you say six inches beyond what's acceptable, Stefan, uh, I think you might need a slightly bigger ruler than that, <laughs> ripping a, a guy's helmet off. Well, no, I th- I, What over, I mean by it. that
1: is just instinctually, like when your testosterone is raging and you are so pissed off, and you are finishing the play in football parlance, it doesn't surprise me uh, that much. I don't think Miles Garrett was going, okay, now if I remove Mason Rudolph's helmet and I use it as a weapon to hit him over the head, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? Miles Garrett's like, fuck this guy. I've got his fucking helmet in my hand. I'm swinging it.
0: So Rudolph was trying to rip his helmet off and, and didn't succeed. So uh, you, we can understand why... Garrett was mad, even if we can't quite get to the place of understanding why he did precisely what he did. what he did. I mean, one of the questions that was raised after this happened, Nate, Eric Mangini, one of our our greatest football minds. One in, of Nate's in the one of, of the Nate's universe,
1: biggest, you know, loves loves Mangini. It's my old buddy. Old yeah, buddy yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: He was like, This is Freddie Kitchens' fault. This is the head coach's fault, culture of blah, 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 blah. Like, how much is this anybody's fault other than just like Miles Garrett did a wrong thing in the moment.
2: Yeah, I don't think you can pin this on the head coach. Um I think that the Cleveland Browns are a little bit undisciplined as a football team if you want to use a cliche like that. I mean, they they got a lot of penalties that day. There was another guy that no one seems to remember who was much worse for the wear than Mason Rudolph who had staggered off the field with blood leaking out of his ear
1: in the same after, game.
2: In the same game. But that particular moment, I don't think you can pin that on Freddie Kitchens. Like you said, Mason Rudolph was, if he wasn't trying to remove his helmet, he was definitely messing with a helmet in a way that made Miles Garrett, who was the far superior athlete, decide, okay, it's the helmet thing. I'm grabbing your (laughs) helmet now, and now I have your helmet. And now I'm being held back by your buddies, but now you're coming at me. Ah, crack, you know. I don't think it was uh, well thought out, but I don't think you can pin that on the coach. Can you pin
1: it on the team's culture, though? I mean, I think it's the larger thing. I mean, there was earlier in the season the left tackle for the Browns. Greg Robinson kicked a dude on the Titans in the head. Um, there were two helmet-to-helmet hits on Pittsburgh wide receivers during that game, um, one on Juju Smith-Schuster, and the one you mentioned, yeah. Nate Deontay Johnson, was helmet-to-helmeted by Demarius Randall. There is a culture within a team in terms of how coaches – instruct players to be on the field or do you find is it, does it really vary from team to team or is the ethos in the NFL, you got to be an animal at all times. And that's what we all want to see because that's why we're paying you.
2: There are degrees of, aggression and control that different teams have and, and certain teams don't. For example, when I played for the Broncos, Mike Shanahan was really big on us keeping our composure in situations where we might get tested or provoked by another team. We were rewarded when we did not retaliate after a cheap shot, for example. And so um, I don't think Freddie Kitchens probably has the same type of reward system yet. He, uh, he was kind of put in that place by – Baker Mayfield right who really liked him and rallied that he become the new head coach well Baker Mayfield himself is kind of a you know a bro <laughs> not a
0: guy known for impulse control
2: no not a guy known for impulse control he tried to outrun campus security couldn't do that and then he has you know week after week sort of not been composing himself well around the media and i don't know i, I think it's probably is a little bit of a reflection of the culture there uh he, freddie kitchens is a first year head coach right and um Those guys, it might be a little bit of the, you know, the inmates running the asylum thing.
1: Nate Jackson played football in the NFL for the Denver Broncos. He also wrote Slow Getting Up and Fantasy Man.
2: Order
0: them if you have not read them already. Nate, thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases Before we talk about the Cheatin' Astros, I wanted to let you know that in our
1: bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Josh and I will talk about the hip injury that ended the season of Alabama quarterback and, until Saturday anyway, top NFL prospect Tua Tangavai Loa. If you want to hear that and you're not a member, you can sign up for Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can do that at slate.com slash hangupplus. Last week, the Athletics Ken Rosenthal and Evan Drellich reported that the Houston Astros used a center field camera to steal signs during their World Series-winning 2017 season. That report, which relied on an interview with then Houston pitcher Mike Fires and three anonymous sources, revealed that the Astros would use that camera to get signals from the opposing catcher in real time, and that team personnel would then bang loudly on a trash can in the tunnel behind the dugout to let Houston's hitters know when an off-speed pitch was coming. Major League Baseball is now investigating, and ESPN's Jeff Passan reported on Sunday that there's a growing sense that the league will impose severe penalties on the Astros franchise. Joining us now is Ben Lindbergh, who writes in podcasts about baseball for the ringer. He's also the co-author of The Only Rule Is It Has to Work and The MVP Machine. Welcome back, Ben.
3: Good to be back. Yeah, we have new ways in which the Astros are behaving badly every couple <laughs> weeks now. I have to keep coming back.
1: It's a series. Just yeah, it should just it.
3: be a, a standing
1: segment. Let's start with the basics. Um, if the reporting is accurate, and it seems like it is because we like Ken Rosenthal and Evan Drellich and Jeff Bassin, Um what rules are the Astros breaking here and how serious a breach is it?
3: Yeah. I mean, we don't even have to rely solely on the reporting because in this case, we can actually hear it. (laughs) You can call up games from 2017 and watch clips and watch Astros games at home in Houston, and you can hear the banging. It's very loud and obvious now that we know to listen for it. And Rob Arthur at Baseball Prospectus did a great analysis last week where he actually took the audio from those games and was able to show in the waveform that this was constant, that it was happening early and often in games from at least least say mid-May of 2017 on. So essentially, sign stealing, the history goes back to the beginning of the game, really, as long as signs have been around, people have been trying to steal them. But there is a difference between using mechanical means or electronic means to steal signs, as the Astros seem to have been doing here. MLB has issued directives to teams telling them that this is not acceptable. You're not allowed to use electronic devices to steal signs. And that is what they were doing here, in addition to garbage cans. I don't know if garbage cans are explicitly (laughs) prohibited, but the video part of the scheme, that's (laughs) against the rules. And, of course, there are many examples in baseball history of teams using – some device or another, you know, the 1951 Giants famously had someone out in the outfield with a telescope and there was a buzzer system. And there used to be lots of teams that would have spies in the scoreboard and they would manipulate things to show the hitter what they were doing. But this seems to be a more sophisticated version of that or as sophisticated as something that relies on trash cans can be. And so it seems like it, it may be more effective and more dangerous. And now we have this evidence. And there's a question of, well, what were other teams doing? But we know much more about what the Astros
0: were doing. So in 2017, the Red Sox got caught and then fined for using an Apple watch in the Mm -hmm. dugout as part of a sign stealing scheme. And I guess I'm curious about going back to just first principles here, Ben. Why is it that we should, if not celebrate, then at least tolerate sign stealing if there's not an Apple product or uh, a camera involved and think that it's wrong, illegal, bad, if there is some kind of technological component to this.
3: Right. We now know that at least three teams were doing some sort of illegal sign stealing in 2017 because the Yankees, who reported that Red Sox scheme themselves, then got fined for something they were doing involving the bullpen phones. So, yes, it at first seems like sort of a strange distinction to draw. Like, if we're going to allow players to steal signs with the naked eye, if you have runners on second base who are picking up those signs and signaling them to the batter, then how is that really different from using a camera. I think the real distinction, and, and to be clear, players don't like either, and they will try to police each other's regular sign stealing. But I think there's a distinction in that I guess we want the game to be decided by the players on the field, probably. That, that seems like what we're going for here. And if you have players using their own wits and smarts and picking up something through savvy, then I guess that seems more acceptable and potentially less effective and less destabilizing. Than having the system with cameras set up that are feeding in a view of the catcher signs in real time and people are watching that in the tunnel and then banging on trash cans, then it's essentially well, also, if
0: you're if your signs get stolen by a guy at second base, to some extent, it's your own fault. Right. right. Or there, there's a way that you can defend against it. Whereas if you're using uh, a camera, then perhaps there's just nothing that uh, a team can. Can do to hide its signals in that case. Well, you're always trying to defend against it, right? I mean, that's right.
1: baked into the into the game itself. And the difference here is that, yeah, these extra human uh, means are what piss people off and what make it easier to steal signs. Again, back to the wits and and smarts.
3: Mm -hmm. And deception is a big weapon for pitchers, obviously. A a big part of the way that they succeed is by keeping hitters from knowing what's coming, one would think at least. And so this is taking a a big weapon out of their arsenal. And yes, there are ways to guard against this, even if it's video stealing, even if it's the Astros scheme. I, I was on MLB Network last week with John Swaltz, and he was talking about how there are ways to get around this. And we know that in the playoffs, other teams having some inkling that the Astros and maybe other teams were doing this sort of thing, they came up with countermeasures. And it's, well, we'll switch signs every batter, and we'll have cards, and we'll have a more complex system where even if they steal signs in one plate appearance, maybe it won't apply to the next plate appearance. Oh, God, the don't, downside... tell me, don't, don't
1: tell me that Major League Baseball is going to start having like giant cards of like Daffy Duck you know, in the dugout <laughs> to signal pitchers what to do.
3: Yeah, I mean, the downside of it is that it just takes longer. I mean, when you're switching up your signs every batter and you have different pitchers coming in and you have catchers working with many pitchers and their job is tough enough. Do you really want there to be an extra delay between pitches because you're cycling through different sets of signs? Is that something that players should have to remember when they're trying to do their jobs? Do we want that to be in the back of their minds constantly? You know, is baseball better in any way? Because you could say, you could imagine a version of baseball where it's just open season and it's, Hey, if you can pick up the signs, then good for you. And you get that advantage. But I think the argument is that it's just not a better version of baseball, that it might be a competitive advantage. But do we want to bog down the game with players having to come up with ways to guard against this?
0: one other kind of foundational question ben i saw um a piece in beyond the box score by cheryl ring insinuated this but i didn't see it elsewhere kind of mentioned that the astros and you know you wrote about these kinds of cameras and the mvp Mm -hmm. machine they have this really high speed camera shoots 500 frames per second edgertronic Mm -hmm. camera do we have any sense of whether that's the kind of camera that they were using versus just like a standard television camera. And if they were, would that have made any difference? Would it have made it easier to steal signs if you have a camera that shoots 500 frames per second at high resolution?
3: The details of the camera haven't been reported, but I don't think that would be advantageous for this specific scheme because essentially they just had the catcher, they had the camera trained on the catcher's hand as he put it down the signal. It makes it seem so, more nefarious
0: though. If it's a yes, if you camera. have <laughs> fancy high speed
3: <laughs> cameras, it, it does make it more seem, seem more nefarious. But I, I don't think you'd need the, the slow motion, you know ultra-detailed footage to be able to see this in real time. That said, I would not be shocked if the Astros or other teams were using even more advanced methods, you know, machine learning, importing video into their computer systems to try to pick up on patterns. That wouldn't be something that you'd be doing in real time, probably. That would be trying to crack the code between games, let's say. But I would not be shocked if they were using some of that technology and programming prowess and bringing that to bear in this area in this arena, too.
1: I think what really is pissing people off is that it's the Astros. Uh, Kenny and Evan reported in a separate story over the weekend that uh, Astros executive asked the team scouts to steal signs from the stands. This was like part of their plan for how to deal with other teams and that scouts then and this was my favorite detail discussed this on on the astro slack channel um (laughs) yes and not everybody was happy with it and i think it's this part you know goes again to the brandon taubman incident from a few weeks ago and this perception of arrogance inside the astros organization that they are better at everything than everybody else and they have They've built a better mousetrap for how to win baseball games. And the fact that Mike Fires went public sort of breaking the omerta that players supposedly have about these sorts of things. And then you had Danny Farquhar, a White Sox pitcher, talking about hearing the banging and stepping off of the mound and changing the signs up that players are willing to talk about how pissed off they are at this organization plays a role here. Well, I yes. think the fires
0: I think the fires thing is actually the part of the story that's the most surprising to me because, like Farquhar, like players on opposing teams will complain. Mm-hmm about opponents doing nefarious stuff all the time, but fires saying when I was on the Astros, we were doing this Mm -hmm. and it was wrong. Like, I can't recall a similar, I mean, I have a bad memory, but I can't recall a similar scenario in in recent years of a guy calling out his own team or his former team.
3: Yeah, that was kind of key to that report. I think we've seen players acknowledge these schemes decades after the fact when it seems kind of quaint and it's gamesmanship, you know, but to do it just two years after when many of the players are still in the league and still on that team, that did set this apart. Now to be fair, players complain about legal sign stealing all the time too. And you know one of the ways that they try to prevent opponents from doing that, from gaining that advantage, is by making it sort of against the unwritten rules or trying to shame the opponent into not doing that. But this goes beyond, I think, what many people in baseball consider to be the line. And that is a pattern for the Astros. They are ruthless in their pursuit of wins, and clearly they are willing to cross ethical boundaries boundaries, or at least what most people in baseball would consider the ethical line in order to do that. So I don't think that makes it unfair to focus on what they're doing because we have these details and it's against the rules and it seems like it should merit some sort of punishment. But- it's true that we may be learning these things about the Astros could mean that they are just more egregious, that they are going further over the line than any other team. That's likely. But it's also possible that there are people who have grudges and ruffled feathers. And so we're more likely to hear about it in the Astros case than we would be in some other team's case.
0: I mean, the, the Astros are in the Patriots zone right now right. where yes. mm-hmm. they are resented by other franchises in the league due to their success. And then when their behavior is outed and reported on, it's not entirely clear to those of us who are outside the business whether what they're doing is particularly nefarious, whether it's actually not unusual but it seems nefarious because they're the ones who are doing it. If Mm -hmm. the edges that they're pursuing, Ben, are super narrow, even if other teams aren't doing it, like maybe the advantage they're getting isn't that huge and it seems like bad that they're trying to do it, but maybe it doesn't explain why they keep winning as, right. as much as they do. Like All of this stuff is kind of like bound up together. And I think what we've seen with the Patriots, if it attaches itself to the Astros, these things are just going to keep coming up again and again and again, so long as they succeed and so long as the same executive team is in place.
3: Yes. And I think that question of how well it worked is an important one, not in the sense that it should determine whether this was wrong or whether the Astros should be punished. It was against the rules. They were breaking the rules. They should be punished. But I think it's still an important question because you wonder how hugely this is affecting the results of the game. How much does it delegitimize those past seasons? And you know, I don't know if it affects the severity of the punishment, but it's something that you wonder about. Did they win the World Series because they were sign-stealing or were they a great team that was also sign-stealing but would have been great anyway? So it's hard to prove anything either way. I think there is some post hoc fallacy going on here, you know, because you see people citing, for instance, the fact that the Astros had a a huge decrease in team strikeout rate from 2016 to 2017, the season when it was believed that they started this sign scaling scheme. And that is true. They did have a huge team decrease in strikeout rate, but that was entirely foreseeable and foreseen and projected by the statistical systems at the time, just based on who was in the lineup. They had a lot of turnover on the team. It was you know half the lineup or more was different players. And prior to the 2017 season, they were projected to strike out much, much less than they had the season before, just based on the players who were now on the team. And they ended up striking out almost exactly as often as they were projected to by a system that had no knowledge whatsoever that they would be stealing signs. So it seems like on one hand, they were cheating. On the other hand, they were also a very good team. And I think the question comes up again when you look at, say, their home and away performance in 2017. We know that they were stealing signs or or we have a high degree of confidence that they were stealing signs at home for much of the season, but they were better hitters on the road. So what do we conclude from that? Do we conclude that sign stealing had no effect? No, I, I don't think we can go that far. But if they were that successful on the road, then how huge an effect could it have had at home where most teams are better at hitting anyway? So it's really kind of tough to parse. And I think it is kind of an important question to ask without dismissing the fact that the Astros clearly went beyond what they were allowed to do here.
1: But isn't it almost beside the point if it worked or not? I mean, the fact is that, you know, this is like the impeachment hearings. It's, you know... Sure. Did the aid go through? Yeah, it eventually went through, but that's not entirely germane. And whether, you know, Evan Gaddis... Hit slightly better at home because he was getting tipped off doesn't really matter to me. It's the fact that he was getting tipped off. He knew what was coming, and for some baseball players, that is a tremendous advantage. Whether they were able to take advantage of it in each specific instance is almost irrelevant. And the the detail in one of Ken and Evans' stories that stuck with me is that there was a cover up here, an attempted cover up, and. At one point, that they report at least once, people on the Astros were worried enough that in the middle of the game, they told the staffer who was in the tunnel outside the dugout monitoring the video and banging on the trash can, and I assume it was a two-person operation, to tear it down and get it out of there. They knew they were cheating in a way that was different from the shortstop or the, a guy standing on second base peering into the catcher's crotch.
3: Yes, they do. And and they were. And I'm sure that the penalties will be as severe as they can be, as the evidence supports, whether it's big fines, whether it's draft picks being taken away, or if this can be pinned on specific players or executives or coaches, then you start talking about suspensions or even people being banned from baseball if it's a, a front office person and if that link is strong enough. And I don't think whether it worked affects that punishment, but I think one of the reasons why we have rules against this is the idea that it would work really well, right? Because if Mm -hmm. it had no effect, then why even bother trying to prevent it? So I I think it's still important to establish how well it works. That said – if it worked even one time, then that's an advantage that you weren't supposed to have according to the rules at the time. And there are problems you know, looking at home and away splits for the Astros, for instance. We know they weren't using this trash can method on the road, or they weren't to the best of our knowledge, but they may have been stealing signs via other methods. And there have (laughs) been players, Carson Smith and Trevor Plouffe have tweeted that there were other schemes going on here where someone in the bullpen might be looking at a TV and raising their hand or lowering their hand on the outfield fence based on what pitch was coming.
1: Right. And Jeff Passan reported in 2018 that there were concerns that Astros players were in the dugout clapping to deliver signals. (laughs) Passan, in his story in 2018, even mentioned the garbage can. Two major league players said they had witnessed the Astros hitting the garbage
0: can. It would be funny if the scheme was entirely dependent on the garbage can and they actually brought the garbage can with them on the road. That would have taken this uh, scandal to another level. It's the perfect scheme.
3: Who would suspect a garbage can? There's garbage everywhere. It's not just in Houston, right? There was also suspicion in 2019 that there was some sort of whistling scheme going on, that they were whistling to reveal pitches. And there was an MLB investigation of that that didn't turn up anything, but who knows how rigorous that was. So – There is a suspicion that this is still going on. And I think that's one of the downsides of this whole thing for the sport is that you can't ever prove that it's not happening. And so once we know that it was happening in this way in at least one place or in a few places that season, then it's a constant question in the back of your mind. Is this on the level? Is there some sort of cheating going on here? And to be clear, MLB has already put in place stricter rules and regulations uh, in the 2018 postseason and then heading into the 2019 regular season where all of the video feeds on TVs in the park, at least that are accessible to the players are supposed to be on an eight second delay and you're not allowed to have cameras in the outfield that are trained on the catcher signs and there are MLB observers around. But again, it's hard to say whether that's something that could completely prevent this practice because, you know, video is omnipresent and cameras are everywhere and devices and screens are everywhere. And so there is some question of, can you actually prevent this unless we move away from the traditional method of passing signs? You know, if, if technology is going to crack the code here, then we we have to use technology to make the code more impenetrable, which could be using headsets uh, on the field, you know, have the pitcher or the catcher with a headset or have them with some legal allowed type of watch where it has, you know, maybe haptic feedback or something and you can just tap it for a sign and only the pitcher can feel it. So something like that may be the next evolution just so that we can put these concerns to rest.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask about telepathy. That seems like the next <laughs> step. I mean, the yeah. thing that we don't really talk about—that's the fundamental issue here—is that catchers, uh, you know, why do you need to know if it's a fastball or a breaking ball? Just catch it, man. Like, how hard can <laughs> it be? Just stick your glove out, adjust on the fly. Like, oh my God, this is gosh. all due to ca- this is all due to catchers oh, just Josh. poor hand-eye coordination. Uh, yeah. So the Astros need to build a
1: better catcher, basically.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. My, uh, slightly unsafe. <laughs> we can. My last question was I was thinking about this because of Stefan's impeachment analogy. If you could take a secret ballot of all the GMs in the league, um, and so we would we wouldn't know, they wouldn't have to make their their votes public, which is the definition of a secret ballot. I'm just being redundant here. Would they vote to expel Jeff Luna from baseball? <laughs>
3: I think they might, whether it's because of sign stealing. I don't know. (laughs) Just to get him out of the league and stop having to compete with him would be But there is a sense among
0: among teams that the Astros are not playing fair, right? Like that they are unloved.
1: Oh, very much so. Yes.
0: Bob Nightingale
1: did a story for USA Today in which two executives said that the Astros should be stripped of the World Series title in 2017. Whether that's rational or not, it reflects something about, (laughs) you know, how they feel about the team.
3: Yeah. I mean, the Astros have been unloved and disliked going back to the beginning of Luno's tenure, you know, late 2011, early 2012, their whole tanking scheme and putting the shift into place and all the things they were doing at that time, not illegal, but certainly going beyond baseball norms. So now in recent years with the Osuna trade and the Taubman outburst and now this sign stealing, they seem to have crossed the line repeatedly where prior to that, it was, well, maybe we're offending some delicate sensibilities of lifelong baseball people here, but we're doing it within the rules and we're con- gaining an advantage from it. Now it's, well, maybe we're gaining an advantage, but we're doing so in a illegal and often very distasteful way.
1: Ben Lindbergh writes in podcasts for The Ringer. He's the author with someone else of The Only Rule Is It Has to Work and The MVP Machine. Ben, thank you as always.
3: My pleasure. At least this is something we can talk about when teams don't sign free agents anymore. <laughs> it's uh, This is the new hot stove. What did the Astros do wrong this week?
4: Judy was boring. Hello. Then
2: Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com.
4: It's my little escape. Now
2: Judy's the life of the party.
4: Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon.
2: Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs>
0: We became brothers that day when he did that to us.
5: We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve.
4: Search
0: for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
1: In the 1980s, when Diego Maradona was becoming the greatest soccer player of his time and maybe of all time, it was hard to follow the sport here. So an American who played and loved the game like me could be forgiven for recognizing the outlines of Maradona's brilliance and the luridness of his tabloid fall, but not the nuance or detail in between. The new HBO documentary, Diego Maradona, more than fills that space, coupling an amazing trove of grainy, never-before-seen footage with new interviews, the film distills an incredibly complex life into a simple paradox, articulated in this clip by Maradona's one-time personal trainer. Let's listen.
5: Diego has had a tremendous terrible
3: Diego no tiene nada que ver con Maradona. Pero Maradona lo arrastra a Diego por todos lados.
1: Diego has had a life both tremendous and terrible. Diego has nothing to do with Maradona, but Maradona drags Diego around wherever he goes. Asif Kapadia directed Diego Maradona. He won an Academy Award in 2016 for Amy, his documentary about the English singer Amy Winehouse, and also directed Senna about the Brazilian Formula One driver Ayrton Senna. Asif, thank you so much for coming on the show.
5: Be here. Thanks for having me.
1: You grew up in London and were a teenager during the period that you focus on in the film Maradona's years with the Italian club Napoli in the late 80s and early 90s. How much of a football fan were you and did your own memories play any role in wanting to make a film about Maradona?
5: Yeah, I'm a big football fan. I've grown up watching football and playing football. And so, yeah, I knew who Diego Maradona was, definitely. People of my generation, people of my age, you know, Maradona was always the best player in the world, really. But I guess, like many people, we're going back to a time before the Internet, before, you know, football was shown on TV everywhere. And, you know, so you knew about the World Cups because they were available, but you didn't know what happened in between the World Cups. And that era, when he was playing for Naples, I have to say, even I hadn't really seen that material. Um, I'd read books about Diego Maradona. He was just such a kind of famous person. But understanding who he was away from those World Cups was really what I wanted to investigate. The
0: footage that you got access to for this film is unbelievable. Such an incredible trove. Can you explain how you got access to it? who shot it, and then how you went through the process of figuring out what to do with it, what to use.
5: So Diego Maradona is the third documentary that I've made um, after Senna and after Amy. And it's all three of them have been made in a particular way. My background previously is in fiction films. I've written and directed feature films. So when I started to make documentaries, my Interest is always to try to make them as cinematic as possible and the aim is always to make them feel like movies, to make them feel like you're in a time and a place where you're following characters. And so my way, my way of doing that is to find footage from the time and spend a lot of time doing a lot of research and finding the archive that is the right you know, the right material from that moment that takes you to a very particular time and a place. And that takes a long time, a lot of research. It's very um, much like being an investigative reporter at times or a journalist as much as it is being a kind of creative filmmaker. What I do as well as the archive is I do a lot of interviews. I talk to people and I listen to them and I try to ask the right questions. And then a bit like what we do now, okay, we do an interview and then from what everyone says, I cross-reference what people are saying in order to figure out what I feel the story is. And then my job is to find the footage to show the audience the story. So hopefully, as much as possible, you're watching and you're learning and learning the story rather than being told it. And so that footage is from hundreds and hundreds of sources. It's from all over the world. It's come from loads of different places. And really, it's put together in a kind of mosaic, like a little jigsaw puzzle that expands and expands and expands to cover someone's life.
1: And a chunk of it was from this time period in the early 80s that was shot by Maradona's first agent. And I guess there was a, an intent to make a documentary about him at some point, but this stuff never got used, right? How did you get a hold of it?
5: Yeah, so his agent, Sister Spieler, Jorge Sister Spieler, who sort of discovered Diego and did the deals to take him to Boca Juniors. He did biggest deal ever to take him to Barcelona, and then an even bigger deal to move him from Barcelona to Naples. So Jorge knew when Diego was young, about 18, 19 years old, he knew this kid. You know, such a big kind of vibe around him. There's such a lot of positivity that this kid's going to be the best player in the world. So he has this idea got to remember, this is, a, this is the late 70s, early 80s. So this is around a period when people were still trying to kind of get soccer to break the U.S. And he thought the way to break the U.S. would be to make a movie. So he hires two Argentinian cameramen to follow Diego as he's playing for Boca, as he plays for Barcelona, and then they follow him to Naples. And the intention was to, to put together a movie that would sell to the U.S. and he'd become a megastar there. But then what happens is Barcelona turns into a bit of a disaster for him. He gets injured. He's unwell. He gets his ankle broken. He goes to Naples. And a few years into Naples, Diego fires his agent, classic kind of Maradona thing, gets rid of the agent. The agent leaves. The cameraman probably never got paid. They leave. So they run off with the tapes. So this film started in 1981. And my producers hear about this material maybe in 2015. And from 2015, they start negotiating to get access to this footage. And then we get our hands on it. And that forms a kind of core part of the film. Not all of the film, but it forms a core part of the behind-the-scenes footage when you're with his family. When you see him on the pitch and the camera's really low down behind right. the goal, all of those shots came from his personal cameraman. That great footage when he first arrives at the San Paolo Stadium. All of that is shot by Diego's personal cameraman.
1: And that's the footage at the very beginning of the film, right, where you do the sort of high-octane six-minute race. The car chase,
5: the French Connection yeah, opening. Yeah. Exactly. Well, um, that's all shot by them.
1: And that, that also serves, I think, in, in watching the film, it's a way to establish his early brilliance in Argentina and at Barcelona um, and get us to Naples, um, which becomes the focus of the film.
5: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of structural kind of trick that we had to play because, you know, when I make these films with my editor, we put the whole film together. We researched everything. And in an earlier cut, it was like 45 minutes before we got to Naples. You know, there's so much story in Diego Maradona's life. And it was great. And if you're a real hardcore Maradona fan, it's all interesting. But if I also want to appeal to people who are not into football and people who may be in the US and maybe never heard of this guy, of which there are a lot, you know. Around the world, this guy's massive. But I met a lot of people in the US who've never heard of Diego Maradona. So I want people like that also to see this film and to understand he's an amazing, charismatic character. You may not be into football. You may be into football, and hopefully you're going to see things you've never seen. So it's always trying to find that delicate balance. Same with Senna, same with Amy. It's not just about appealing to the hardcore fans. So we ended up doing a making a tough call to say everything that happened up until Naples is almost like a setup because Naples is the big story that's the A story that's where he becomes the best player in the world that is while he's playing for Napoli he wins the world cup he wins the championships in Italy and all of his personal issues begin there really so The car sequence is a way to say everything that happened before then is driving us to Naples at high speed. And it kind of gets you in the vibe of being in the world of Diego Maradona, which is kind of fun and lots of dancing and singing, but also he loves a bit of a fight every now and again.
0: So when he gets to Naples, um, Napoli, his club is at the bottom of the league. This is the poorest part of Italy. And we hear... Fans of Juventus, one of the traditional powers in Italian soccer um, and in, you know, a northern Italian club jeering uh, Napoli, calling them unwashed peasants, Africans, the sewer of Italy, wash them with fire. It's really bracing and disgusting stuff. And I guess my question is, did Maradona know what he was getting into when he gets dropped into this club and into this rivalry?
5: Honest truth is he had no idea where he was going. That's kind of what's so amazing that there was a time and a place when the most expensive footballer in the world would go to a country and a club where he knew nothing. He just went there because that's the team who was willing to pay and bought him. He arrives there and realizes, oh, my God, you know, the, the previous season they nearly got relegated to a lower league. They only saved themselves on the last match of the season. The team's not great. They've never won anything ever before, really, in their history the most expensive player in the world goes to a team that's never won anything. Can you imagine that happening now? It would not happen ever in football. He goes there and he realizes, actually, I feel quite at home here because he's from a slum. He's from a shanty town, a favela type place in Argentina. He's from a very poor background. He comes from a large family, like eight of them living in one room, no power, no electricity, no running water, no, uh, no restrooms, nothing like that in their house. Okay. You have to do it out in the street. So, That's where he's from. He ends up in Italy, in the poorest city, pretty much, the region of Italy, in one of the poorest and most dangerous cities in the whole of Europe. So where most people would run away, this is the the brilliance of Diego Maradona's mind. He's like, I feel at home here. (laughs) I'm ready to fight for you guys because they're being really rude to you. They're calling you all sorts of names. And all my life, people have said that to me because I'm from this sort of place. I come from a really crap place. I'm, I'm here. I'm one of you. And that's what happens. Rather than running away and being afraid, he's like, I'm here to fight for you. And they win. He takes them and within three years, they win the championship. This is, you've got to understand the, the kind of context. The Italian league in the 80s, all the best players in the world were playing in that one league. It's not like it is now where it's spread between Spain and England and Italy and you know France. They were all in Italy And they were all in the best teams, which were dotted around the north of Italy. And he's the one who goes to the south, where no one's ever won before, and he wins more than once and he starts winning other trophies too so that's why he's so legendary for me
1: before we get to what dragged him down in Naples uh, while it was building him up I want to talk about the World Cups that he played in while he was in, in Naples uh, he was left off the team in 1978 when he was 17 years old and that was the World Cup that was in Argentina that Argentina won and that bothered him um, he played in 1982 the World Cup was in Spain Argentina was eliminated in the second round and then comes 1986 when he is... He gets
5: off against Brazil which right. is like the thing. He, in 82 he was being built up as being the best player in the world I'm, I'm old enough to remember 78 one of my first memories is seeing the 78 world cup final with all the ticker tape and, um, mm-hmm. and my brother was a big Holland fan so we all actually were rooting for Holland and they didn't win it that's twice in a row they lost um, 82 everyone at school was like this kid's the best player in the world we're waiting to see him wait to see him and he doesn't really do anything he gets kicked he gets really uh, beaten up by the Italians and he gets kicked by the Brazilians and he gets sent off so he kind of goes off on disgrace, and that's when he had his big curly perm. Right, and then '86 comes along, and
1: '86 is really the epitome. It's what made Diego Maradona Diego Maradona worldwide. I mean, if you were in Italy and you were a Naples fan, they still hadn't won that first title yet. But this was his genuine, I think, coming out. And as you so beautifully, you know, portrayed in the film, it's that game against England where he scores on the hand of God goal where he bats it into the into into the net and then later he scores to win and seal the victory Um, with the goal of the century when he dribbles past six English players and pockets the ball in the net. So you have cheater genius, loved, hated. But to me, what was so, so wonderful about that footage is this, the joy that you see, the phone call to his mother after the game. You felt like, all right, so Maradona, we know from the rest of the film that he's already begun his decline and Get it, and, he's, and he's getting sort of dragged into drugs and the mob and, and being the celebrity in Naples. But at the same time, it's this pure, innocent Diego, this amazing athlete at age 24 at the peak of his powers.
5: Yeah, I think, you know, that's one of the reasons why I've, I've over the years really loved this format of making films, documentaries about real people, but using archive from the time, because there is something amazing about real stories, particularly when you're dealing with sports. Because I think if you fictionalise a lot of sport, it just feels a bit like, you know, it feels a bit too neat when everyone wins and they, the best player, the hero scores the winning goal in the final. What's interesting about Maradona's life is the biggest game in his career, and he's had a long life, isn't the final, it's not even the semi-final, it's actually the quarter-final when he beats England. And in Argentina, and our timing is really interesting because there's a film festival going on in Argentina right now, and the last few nights the film has been shown on a big screen to audiences, and the place where they get most excited, and where they cheer the most and where they're clapping the most is always the game against England. When we had our premiere in France, in Cannes, the place where everyone clapped was when he scores a second goal against England. And the reason why a lot of people hate him in England is because of the first goal against England. So that really, that match is the one that you can sum him up with. Yeah, the handball, which I talked to him about, and he answers the question and he explains it very matter-of-fact. I just went for it, I tried it, I got away with it, looked at the rest, and he did it in such a way that the rest doesn't notice. This is pre any kind of video replays or anything like that. And then he comes out three minutes later with the best goal ever. And that whole tournament, you know, he is by far the best player in the world. He, he it is the best example of a single player taking a team through a World Cup that pretty much anyone can think of. There's other World Cups where players have had good, the odd good match and they've been really, really strong. But Maradona's is really the best. And the fact that he did it in a match against England a few years, four years after a war, a humiliating war where the Argentinians were totally, you know, beaten by the English to come back and get revenge. And I think that's why they love him in Argentina. That's why he is so famous. It's not because he scores the winning goal in the World Cup final, it's because he did it against this kind of European, colonial, powerful country that humiliated them. So his thing is, I'm going to humiliate you back. But he does it in a maradona way, which is like cheating on a football pitch.
0: So Napoli wins Syria A uh, in 1987, Maradona calls it the best moment of his life, says that Naples is his home, then he leads his team to victory in the UEFA Cup in, in 1989. And at that point, Asaf he says that he wants to move to a less stressful league. Um, and the team won't sell him. Is this a real sliding door moment for him? Was there actually an opportunity for him to leave this place where he's considered a god, where people have his photo next to um, you know that of, of Jesus on, on their walls. What Could that have actually happened?
5: Yeah, uh, that's a really good question because this is another key moment of, our film is really to show people around the world about this character you may have heard of, Diego Maradona, show me how brilliant he was, but also to kind of show you how football used to be, where people would try and break your ankles, really. The pitches, the balls were different, you know, the tackles were different. And it's also um, a period of time when, If you had a contract with a team, now the players are all powerful. They can leave whenever they want. They can go where they want. They choose how much You know they can run down their contracts and go for a free. In those days, the team owned you. So essentially, he had a deal and a contract with Napoli. Napoli owned him. If they choose, they don't want to play him. He can just sit there and rot in the reserves. He would not be able to leave. And so he wanted to go, but they didn't let him go because they owned him. Now, I think there is a sliding doors moment because the place that he wanted to go to was a team that was on the rise. There was a lot of money there. And he says, this is very classically Diego Maradona, okay? On one hand, he wanted to leave because he wanted to go somewhere else. A bit more peaceful is what he said because Napoli was crazy. He wanted to go to Marseille. If you know anything about Marseille, (laughs) <laughs> That's not the most peaceful town in the world, right? They, you can get anything you want in Marseille that you can get in Naples. They're very connected. Let's just say the underworld yes. parts are very connected there. So you wanted to go to Marseille, who at the time had a lot of money coming in from a guy called Bernard Tappi, who was going to try and build a team to win the European Cup. And so he could have essentially gone there and won the European Cup, but he's also all of the kind of demons that he had would have essentially followed him because you're not going to get away with it in Marseille. So that's the story. There were a lot of great players that were coming in there. That team, Marseille, a few years later were banned and lost trophies that they won because there was a lot of corruption going on in that team because of the owner and where his money was coming from. So it could have been different but it could have been more of the same no maradona when he leaves town he he doesn't go somewhere peaceful even though he says that he goes somewhere with a little bit more chaos often right
1: because at the time it sort of feels like maradona's aware that i'm at the point where this could go completely wrong i mean he is at this point a full on addict playing on sunday party he until didn't need wednesday to
5: get out of naples i think so yeah i think definitely he He needed to escape. He needed to get
1: out. And there's that moment of recognition when Ferlaino, the the owner of of Naples, says, I was Maradona's jailer. Um, I guess that's retrospective. Amazing line. Yeah, it is an amazing line. And then a little bit later, after they win the league again, he says, the joy was enormous. I was right not to sell him. So this conflict between the awareness that Maradona's a coke addict and he's in deep with the mob and I can do something about this to help him versus I need this guy to make sure that my football team continues to be successful.
5: See These moments, this is what I find really interesting because as a football fan... As a team owner, as a player, you have all these different people with all the different dynamics. What, what the fans would have said is, we've got the best player in the world. Even if he doesn't train, even if he's a mess, even if he goes out at night, we don't care. We've got Maradona. We don't want him leaving. Okay? And the, the team owners, all I care about is my legacy, which is if I win another championship, it will prove it's not a fluke. Because I have got Maradona, and the players would say to him, we don't care that he doesn't train. We don't care. Him being around makes us feel good and makes us feel confident. And so we will train twice as hard for him. And so he would go out partying, would never train, was getting totally out of shape. And the players, right to the end, defended him. And so you've got this really interesting thing. And if you talk to fans, none of the fans, now they might have, you know, they've got older and they look back and they go, well, maybe we should have let him go. But at the time, they didn't want to lose Maradona. You don't want him going to another team. If you've got him, you want to keep him. It all... Builds to this 19, the next World Cup, yeah. the 1990 World Cup, and I think that's where things start to get really bad. 1990-91 season is when Marathon is in a really bad way, and I think that's when it all comes to a head, really. And actually, people then decide, you know what, it's time to go. And by then, perhaps as an as an addict, he he's over there. He's really not playing. He's really, if you look at his body shape, the way it changes during the course of the film, he looks so overweight he looks he's a bit of a mess he's sweating he's not he's not in a good place psychologically he's not in a good way physically he can't do it on a pitch anymore and he once again he tries to lose weight he tries to build himself back to fitness to prove it one last time in the world cup but he can't you can't do that to your body and and then perform so
0: argentina beats italy in naples in 1990 in the world cup semi-final and the way that um it's depicted in the film, is that that is a major turning point in terms of how the country as a whole perceives him and treats him we see headlines Maradona is the devil the obnoxious one he's chosen as the most unpopular person in Italy how fair is it to draw a line between the fact that he defeats uh, the country where he's been been living in the World Cup and the fact that he then gets banned for uh, a positive cocaine contest in 1992? is that just a convenient way to get him out of the picture Somebody Who's, who's hated in Italy at that point? So his,
5: his ban is 1991, actually. Yeah, so it is like six months into the season, but he doesn't play many games. But it, it definitely does seem to be there is a turning point there within the country where there's a lot of stories, there's a lot of rumours about what he gets up to, but it's all kept quiet. You know, there are a lot of people protecting him. And the main thing that did seem to happen post-1990 World Cup is that protection starts to go away you know, people start coming for him. And and there are a lot of people, you know, the kind of the courts come for him, the the kind of tax authorities come from him, potentially the protection he had within Naples starts to dissolve a bit because coincidentally, a lot of those kind of Camorra guys are being hunted down because there's, I mean, there's a war going on in the background between different gangs and it gets very gruesome, very, very dark so that people start getting arrested. And in the midst of all of these arrests, They start hearing Diego's name, they start hearing, you know, his images turn up where he's hanging out with these gangsters. So all of this that may have been known by people, but covered up for a few years, suddenly ends up in newspapers. So certainly there is a change in the way he's perceived and treated, and he's just getting worse and worse, and his performances are getting worse and worse, and there's more and more heat. Around him, and everyone that hangs around him is realizing that, there's, that this kind of this is not a kind of secret anymore. It's all out, and so it all leads up to you know the rules start changing on doping, and it becomes one of those things where you ha- he you know he'd been tested before, no problem. He gets tested, he gets done, and so all of that. And um, as the, as they say in the film, his lawyer says nobody from the club came to the case to defend him, so he literally. Well, you know, if you have a star player, your player who's the best player in the world, that's the most expensive player of all time, gets done for something, some sort of infraction, and in this case, doping. Not one person turned up at the hearing that's kind of unusual. So um, it gets bad. It gets really bad.
1: The film, there's really no one in Diego's life, it feels like, that is looking out for his long-term health interests. I mean, I feel like the closest that you come is the trainer, who's the clip that we heard during the introduction to the Signorini,
5: segment. I Signorini. would agree. I think Signorini was there for his, him, his body and his mind, actually. He's still there. That's the thing. He still um, supports him.
1: But ultimately, it, it's that, that tug, you feel it, the pain of the that tug between wanting to preserve this remarkable athlete versus the knowledge that you know he is descending into hell. What do you come away with in terms of how Maradona was treated in Naples and by the football world generally?
5: It's a difficult question. I think there were a lot of people who, as you say, this is the nature of sport or football or you know the world where people say. We loved him. We were fans. But actually, some of the fans can't see that they're actually suffocating him with love. They're spoiling him. And the more you spoil someone, the more lost they can get. Then there are people from the club who were like, you know, they were happy when he was winning. And then when they didn't need him, they get rid of him. Now, that happens to every athlete. You don't have to be the best player in the world. That happens all the time. Mm -hmm. Young kids are suddenly given a lot of hope. They don't have necessarily a great education. They're given lots of money in a very quick way. And then when they lose themselves, it's their fault. You know, that we see that all the time in sport. So there is an element which is just like, this is how the business works. It is business. In terms of who was around him, you know, he had some good people around him. But what often happens when, you know, if your ego gets out of control, if you become like a godlike status character... Maybe you stop listening to the people who care about you. And one by one, they get pushed away, they vanish, the family is sent back to Argentina, the friends that were with him when he started out all lose their jobs or get fired. Because essentially, they all end up on the payroll. That's the problem, isn't it? And then they get fired, and the paranoia begins if you're taking a lot of cocaine. Now, that's probably not the best way to kind of make straight decisions about anything. And I think the one person that. It seemed like that stuck with him from beginning to the end. And he's still, I have to say, around and still can speak very honestly about Diego Maradona because he's not afraid of him, is his trainer, Fernando Signorini. And I would say on our film, he's one of the people who's most eloquent and most honest when he talks about Diego. He knew his body. He knew his mind. He was there in the dark days. He was there in the good days. He's on the pitch celebrating when they win the World Cup. You know, they're hugging each other on the pitch. So I think Signorini is the nearest, I would say, we found to a friend, Even though he was on the payroll, he was a friend who was there and who really genuinely cared about Maradona. It's quite hard to find lots of other people who genuinely from beginning to end cared about him. I think he himself became unbearable at times and pushed everyone away.
0: There are a lot of similarities in this film to your previous documentaries, and I have thought, you know, after seeing Amy when it first came out, there's this one scene that really stuck with me that's really haunting, and I've watched it multiple times, the scene where Amy Winehouse is recording the song Back to Black with Mark Ronson, and it's just really spare and you just hear her vocals and then the music kicks in it's amazingly done but you just really see her genius in that moment but also like her genius and her art it's really like plumbing her pain, the pain of her life. And so even in that moment when you see her at her best, it's still very dark and sad and, and haunting. And that's possibly also just because she succumbed to her addiction and she's dead now. And with Maradona, you know, we were talking about the eighty-six World Cup and the other on field scenes. There's so much joy there when he's able to be at his best on the field. And we see some moments when when he's not, but just that kind of distinction between them and, and their ability and their genius and how it's displayed was really stark and stood out to me.
5: Yeah, I think, you know, if you haven't seen Senna, I would recommend you um, check out Senna as well because they are kind of a trilogy of films. You know, they are about three brilliant, charismatic geniuses. Brilliant. Amazing. What I'm interested in is these kind of charismatic figures. They're not you know, Aiton is not the guy who won the most world championships. Amy's not the biggest selling artist of all time. And, you know, Diego Maradona's not won as many Champions Leagues or Golden Balls as all these other guys out there, you know, we're talking about. Yet, these people are remembered because they were special. There was something about them that made them stand out. And in a way, they were very smart. They were very streetwise characters in a way. They also had a vulnerability to them. There, there's something about them that they kind of show their heart on their sleeve at times. Um, and I think there's something about the simplicity about their joy. You know, you know, when they're happy, you know, that they do this because they love it. They're not doing it because they wanted to be famous. They're not doing it necessarily because they wanted to make love of money. That becomes a consequence of their their gifts and the hard work that they put in. But somewhere along the way, the joy, the pure joy of playing football, racing a car, singing, goes. And there is always a moment in all of the films when you look in the eyes. And I spend a lot of time making these films, finding footage where you see their faces and everything is reflected in their eyes and on their faces. There is a point when the joy goes, the light goes from their eyes, and suddenly they're doing this thing that they love, but it's not fun anymore. And it's becoming a problem, and it's becoming more and more of a challenge. Now, the interesting thing about making film about Maradona was, He did survive. He got out of there. He got out of Naples and he went to the next place and he had a hard time and he got out of there and somehow he's still going. And it's only now he's gone back to Argentina after all these years. So that idea of, that's why that key line is in the film at the beginning of the film and at the end of the film. When you're on the pitch, everything goes away. Life goes away. You know, you just enjoy the freedom and the pure simplicity of kicking a ball around. That's what he loves. Somewhere along the way, life just gets so difficult for him. So even when he's old, even now, he still likes to kick a ball around. He can't even walk, but he still celebrates scoring probably the crappiest goal he's ever scored in his life, <laughs> playing five-a-side, but he still celebrates and No matter how sad the ending is, I always smile when I see that shot at the ending because I just think like... That's what I love about him. The guy still wants to win, still wants to score. And then he feels that pain in his back and his legs when he walks away.
1: And the, ultimately, I felt that despite you know, looking and and you you feel this sort of lost promise. You know, could there have been a 94 World Cup performance? You know, could there have been more greatness from Maradona, more indelible moments that we as fans could consume? Ultimately, I felt this was a sympathetic portrait. I mean, do you feel sympathy toward Maradona? I mean, you don't come away feeling like this was a man that squandered his life.
5: I hope it's a balanced um, film. I hope it shows you... He's brilliant, and and I think so far the reaction has been people who who you know didn't know about him go my god this guy was great, and people who did know about him and love him see a lot of that brilliance. But I also I wanted to try to understand that the reason why his life turned out the way it was wasn't because he was just fantastic at something. It's because there was also something in him that led him to trouble that that got him addicted. He was an addict for a long time afterwards. He never completed a season. He never completed a tournament, really, after that as a player. You know, he goes to 94 World Cup, but then he gets banned. The reason he gets banned, I think, goes all the way back to what happened in Naples. And the reason when he was coaching, he never really succeeded because he wasn't trained as a coach, really. He was living off the legend. And really, at the end of our film, he becomes the myth, the legend of Maradona. And the idea is the guy that arrives in Naples in that car is Diego. And somewhere during the length of the film, he changes... Into the mythical figure who has his image on these huge buildings and, you know, is famous for hanging out with Fidel Castro and lots of other kind of world leaders and the Pope and picking a fight with everyone everywhere he goes. But um, somewhere along the way, there was there was a kind of I think there was a sensitive guy who smiled and who had a brightness in his eyes and he was brilliant and who loved to play. And that joy did vanish somewhere along the way. But he's still going. And I think that is something to be celebrated. I don't want it to feel like it's a negative film about him. I wanted to try and find the right balance of the Diego and the Maradona, the the cheat and the genius, you know, the, the, the kind of angel and the devil. That's what he is. He's both of them all the way down the line.
1: Asif Kapadia directed Diego Maradona. You can watch it on HBO. And you really should, Asif. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
5: Great. Thanks, guys. Nice talking.
1: That's our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at slate.com. If you're still here, I'm guessing you might want even more Hang Up and Listen. In our bonus segment this week, Josh and I talked about Alabama quarterback Tua Tungavailoa and his injury over
0: the weekend. The questions that get raised when something like this happens both go towards the specifics of of his case, Stefan, but also just the general facts of college athletics, particularly when they pertain to somebody like Tua, who could have been making north of $10 million if he had been eligible for the NFL draft.
1: To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. For Josh Levine, I'm Stefan Fatsis. In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
5: Play for free at
1: LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
4: Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C.,